Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to naturalism, conservation, and stewardship. I'm Dylan Banyasco, a landscape designer and outdoorsman from Central Texas. I'm learning from individuals and organizations that are working to improve our relationship with land. Subjects may range from regenerative agriculture to ethical hunting and wildlife management. Please subscribe on your preferred app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. Christine Tompkins is the president and co-founder of Tompkins Conservation and former CEO of Patagonia Clothing Company. For nearly 30 years, she has committed her life to protecting and restoring Chile and Argentina's wild beauty and biodiversity by creating national parks, restoring wildlife, inspiring activism, and fostering economic vitality. Having protected almost 15 million acres of parklands in South America through Tompkins Conservation and its partners, Christine and her late husband Douglas are considered some of the most successful environmental philanthropists in history. We covered quite a bit in this conversation, from Christine's early career and growth with Patagonia, to her and her late husband's beginnings in conservation, their national park projects, the process of rewilding, and much more in between. To learn more, head to TompkinsConservation.org and watch Christine's 2020 TED Talk, Let's Make the World Wild Again. Thanks for listening, and Happy New Year! All right, I'm joined by Christine Tompkins. Chris, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Nice to be here. Oh, thank you. This is really an honor for me to meet you. I, uh, I've i been aware of your work for some time, but as I was just telling you before we started recording, I had no idea how prolific you have been in conservation over the last nearly 30 years. <laughs> so I'm really excited to, uh, to tell people about some of the things you're up to. Oh, great. Just to introduce your work, Tompkins Conservation, I want to go through some of the numbers here that I pulled from uh, a few different places. Mm-hmm. And tell me if any of these are wrong, because they're pretty staggering figures. You have contributed around or over $400 million of your own personal wealth to fund conservation. You have been involved in the creation or expansion of around 15 new national parks in South America with 14 million acres of newly protected lands, two marine national parks, over 30 million acres of sea protected, and over 20 conservation and agriculture projects. Am I off on any of those? Nope. Nope. (laughs) That's about it. (laughs) Unbelievable. Well, now that we've established that, I'd like to to start from early on and and Mm -hmm. learn about how you got here. So can you tell me about your upbringing and your early career? Well, uh, we were raised on our great-grandfather's ranch here in California, and I'm in California now rather than down in the Southern Cone because of COVID. Um, So growing up on a ranch doesn't necessarily teach you about nature. In fact, probably doesn't. But it does get you outside. It It gets you to be part of whatever is outdoors. And then I met Yvonne Chouinard when I was 15, and he really, along with his Melinda, his wife Melinda, really changed my life. Uh, I started working for him during my summers uh, from college, and then when I graduated from college, I just started working with him full time. And 
we were just uh, making rock and ice climbing equipment in those days. But then Yvonne decided he wanted to start making clothes for climbers and outdoor people. And, and he wanted to call it Patagonia Company. And um, so we did that as well. And then that morphed into um, a, a CEO role for me for, I don't know, 16 years or so. And then um, when I was 43, I retired from there and with my soon-to-be husband went to southern Chile in Argentina and started a new phase of my life in conservation. Your husband, uh, who you mentioned, Douglas Tompkins, um, founded the North Face, right? So he was kind of in the same world. That's right. Yeah. What were those early years like with Yvonne Chouinard starting Patagonia? Was it... Um, I, I see some of the old well, videos. It looks way, like y'all are... You know, we were people of the 60s and early 70s, so that'll tell you something. But really, I credit my, what I understood about ecology and what was really happening to the world to Yvonne and his wife, Melinda. They're still really close friends of mine, and I'm on the board of Patagonia still. And um, they wanted to create a company that they themselves would want to work for. And with an ethos and value system that was completely unheard of, really, anywhere. So I am one of the really lucky ones that I fell in with that lot very early in my life and um, was lucky enough to grow this business with them and and uh, have a have a professional life that was really extraordinary. Yeah. So the connection to the landscape of Patagonia was there from the beginning, I suppose, with uh, climbing expeditions and things like well, that. Well, it right? was for Yvonne and Doug. They, they, I didn't get to Patagonia. I think I was the last one of us to go. I didn't get there until 1990, but, but Yvonne and Doug did a long trip. They, they took a van from San Francisco to the tip of South America to surf and climb and ski volcanoes and so on. And they climbed Fitzroy, Cerro Fitzroy, which is a really emblematic peak in Southern Argentina in the Andes. And I think for both of them, they, they were really moved by, and I think permanently influenced by this territory that they were able to visit so long ago and it really influenced how Doug and I ended up being in the Southern Cone again in the last third of our lives. And of course, Yvonne named his clothing company Patagonia. So it had a big on big impact on him as well. Was there a notion in those early days um, from, from Doug, I suppose, cause he was there first. Did he see the potential of these places for um, for large scale conservation projects at that time, or was it more just that he was attracted? No, to I don't spending think so. There? I think it was. I think they were heavily influenced by the vastness of the territory. Even though we were, uh, Yvonne and I are from the west here, and Doug spent a lot of time, obviously, in the western United States. But also the culture, the gaucho culture, the 
the ranching culture and just space, raw space that they were encountering really just never left them. Yeah. And But I don't believe that either one of them had an idea about conservation in 1968 per se. They did fall in love and, and love leads you to protecting something, but might not yeah. have been consciously. So when you left, when you both left your respective business worlds and headed to South America, what was the first move? How did you start this? Did you just start acquiring land? Well, Doug is the one who had the idea about all of these things. He really is the visionary for for just about everything we eventually have done down there. Of course, since he died six years ago, that's expanded and you know things evolve, but he's certainly the author of it. And he was going down to Chile in the early 60s. He was a ski racer and he was training in the off season down there. And so he he didn't have any money, but he hitchhiked all over Chile and Argentina in, in, in those days. And uh, so when he sold his part of a spree company, which he started with his former wife, Susie, he was at a point in his life, he was almost 50 at this point, 49.50, and he really um, was seriously influenced by people like Arnines and others. By this time, he's really thinking about uh, what he's ha had been doing with his life, and and it was sort of crystallizing what he would do with his life for for the for the rest of his life. And so he went down to Chile, thinking of just to go again, and and it was in 1991 or 92 he realized that. Perhaps there was a role that he could play in conserving these lands he loved so much. But like all big ideas, they're really more organic at the beginning than people like to look back and remember that, yeah. that it was one big idea clearly focused, and it never is. Sure. And then I went down in early 93 and then went down permanently at the end of 93 and well we've been doing this work ever since did so. you speak spanish already when you moved there well you know as a californian you do speak spanish <laughs> and we lived in venezuela when i was a child oh okay very briefly for three years so um but no you get you get to a place where you actually have to speak fluently and fast and you realize how little you really understood of the language but now i'm fluid and fast oh, I bet. <laughs> after all these years uh you mentioned arn arnias how do you say, is that how i say it arnines arnines i've only read his name and um i read it while researching you actually i didn't know about him but uh environmental philosopher from um norway yes and um, his work, I wonder if you could characterize his work a little bit for me because I only just briefly was, was um, exposed to his ideas, but they kind of remind me of Leopold's land ethic, his notion of deep ecology. Mm -hmm. I think that's so true. He 
studied philosophy as a graduate student. He has his PhD in philosophy, and he was um, really concentrating on the thinking of Spinoza. And the short story is that he really is, in my mind anyway, the one, the person who really began to think very deeply about human relationship to nature and trying to find a platform, a philosophical platform, if you will, that would tie together we as humans with the non-human world. And he built this platform, which is very simple. And essentially it is that it begins with the statement that all life has intrinsic value. And when you think about that in this light, it informs virtually everything we do, everything we think about. If all life has intrinsic value, what am I doing that, that denudes or damages a healthy life for other life? And it, and it has been really a guiding light for both of us since I really, through him and others, had long conversations with yourself about what does it really mean? I, it, it's almost, uh, if someone joins the Catholic church to serve and, and deep ecology is not a religion at all, but when you take vows, when you really think through what does this really mean to me and how do you operate in this world to try to do the least harm possible in this case, in, in a deep ecological um, sense, mm -hmm. then slowly, if we're listening, we're, we'll never get it right, not completely, but can you drive your life in a way that love for all, all life is tantamount to, to the, that's the value system that you're driven by. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited to read more of his work. Um, cause that, that, uh, notion of deep ecology, I, I really want to dig into that a little bit more. And it was the, the namesake of the first foundation under, um, Tompkins conservation, right? The foundation for Deep ecology. deep ecology yes since then i was looking at your timeline that you published in your 25 years <laughs> of, of work and after that came a series of other foundations yeah all all within the same family uh framework and doug founded all these foundations i founded one <laughs> that's part of the family foundations but he founded poof yeah four or five what this is a naive question, but what is the purpose of um, setting up different foundations rather than doing it under w one entity? You know, good question. And how, were we to do it again today, we wouldn't do it again. Mm. But um, I think promoting deep ecology, the deep deep ecological thinking was really important then and, and a foundation that was really focused on thinkers and writers 
and developing what Doug always said, the intellectual infrastructure for this kind of thinking was really important. And then as we got involved in conservation of land as, as a, one of the outflows of a deep ecological thinking, then we decided, well, let's you know, conservation land trust. And that's how that got going. So okay. it was just it, kind of forming as you went. Just kind of forming as we went. And uh, Quincy Tompkins Imhoff, Doug's eldest daughter, ran the foundation for many, many years on the front end. And she would be the one who would be really the most <laughs> um, in informative about the the evolution of of names and how we broke things into being working yeah. really closely with her dad i just wondered if there was socio-political reasons or something like that but no that makes sense yeah uh, so let's talk about your work you characterize it as uh at least i've, I've read this and, and heard you say something similar that you're fighting the extinction crisis first and foremost I think that's true. I think we're fighting a lot of things um, that go beyond that. But basically, our conservation work that is separated some from a lot of the work done to support writers and thinkers, uh, people who were challenging the the efficacy and the the reasoning behind a globalized economy and what the downfall, what the what the down dark side of all of those things are. So there was all of that, but on the conservation side, acquiring large tracts of critical habitat, taking them out of production's way, and then eventually donate them back to the country as new national parks was a strategy as much as anything because we never wanted to hold on to all the properties that we acquired. They were never going to be ours. We mm -hmm. always hoped that they would belong to all citizens of either Chile or Argentina in our case. And that was as important as the acquisition itself because we always felt like, especially growing up in the United States, um, national parks that finally you don't achieve much if you just acquire land then you lock it up with the front gate out in front and and no one can visit nobody can see the beauty there nobody can see who's living there it's just our feeling that it's democratic that you especially in big territories which we were fortunate enough to to um, acquire, mm -hmm. those should be entities that belong to all Chileans or all Argentines because they are some of the jewels of their territory. So that was never in question. And then um, about 15 years ago, we started really looking at, we were working in areas where top predators were missing and so on. And then we got involved in the rewilding of extirpated species. So we sort of, we, we began to realize that 
creating national parks wasn't actually our end story. It was just, it's just a means to get to fully functioning ecosystems and, and, and you can't do that without top predators and key species that have been missing, especially some for century. So that's how it evolved. Yeah. I'm really excited to hear more about the rewilding. Uh, you, you split your work up into, or at least categorize it into creating parklands, rewilding, uh, ecological agriculture, and lastly, activism. So I want to quickly go and through communities. I, I don't, communities. So, so we consider rewilding and conservation and creating parklands is hand in hand with community work. So mm. I think sometimes that's not completely clear. And it's, it's one of the basics of anything we do is we understand that local and regional communities not only have to be involved in all of these things, but, but, in the long haul, a hundred years from now, if there aren't local and regional benefits from conservation, the destiny of those lands, who knows what may happen. So they really need to have a sense of ownership. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's inseparable. Yeah. Um, I mean, it must be complex. So let's, let's think about, let's go through creating a new national park. So you, you, identify a large contiguous uh, piece of land, right? Private properties and acquire them. And then let's say they are working lands. So you've got um, a few thousand cattle or sheep Mm -hmm. in in those places. What's the process of rewilding those without disrupting local economy, without displacing people, I know these are things that you think about and that you're very sensitive to. I just wonder um, how it all works. Yeah, how it all works. It seems difficult. Well, you know, it is difficult. So let's start there. And and let's also say that every project is different. Every community is different. So there there is no and sh- shouldn't be any cook, cookie cutter way to do this. It really varies. The first project we did was Pumaline. That's a million acres of primal temperate rainforest. So think British Columbia or Southern New Zealand. So it's cold. And there was a lot of hue and cry when we first got started because we were two foreigners buying up large tracts of land saying that we wanted to uh, create a parklands and that all, all would be welcome there. And it was met with tremendous um, suspicion and just downright anger. And of course, that was over a generation ago. If you think about 20, almost 28 years have passed since all of that took place. And as harsh as it was, and as sometimes scary as it was, it's completely understandable that it happened because it just was a new thing and it happens everywhere. I don't want to minimize what it felt like and for, for, for all involved, but it, you know, I look at it very differently today than I did when we were in the moment and having um, holy hell 
break over our heads. That is a shock. I can't imagine if a, you know, um, a Russian started buying up millions of acres near me, I'd be pretty skeptical. (laughs) Yeah. And, and why, who would ever buy something and then donate it to a sovereign state? Just, it felt really audacious and ergo pretty unbelievable that mm-hmm. something like that might happen. But in the moment, I didn't understand the fights that took place in the United States over certain, the creation of certain national parks like Grand Tetons National Park in Wyoming. That was a 60 year gunslinging fight. Mm. I had no idea. So we were really naive from a lot of different directions. And and that ended very quickly once we got into it and (laughs) and got into um, a lot of difficult circumstances. But but that was I'm I'm happy it happened to us actually today because it really it was really clear that we were underestimating maybe the scope of what we had we didn't set out to buy millions of acres it just evolved over time as I said it's always kind of an organic process and and you have to be prepared for how that. <clears throat> excuse me, how that might look to the outside world and not sugarcoat it. You got to be really honest with yourself with things like this. So when we started Patagonia National Park, to your point, it was a big valley. We bought 270,000 acres at first, and it was a huge, it was the third largest estancia in, in Chile. And it was a hundred years into heavy duty livestock, sheep and cattle. And the grasslands had a sim- had begun simply to disappear. It had been eaten down to, to, to dust. So in that case, um, we very specifically met with all of the gauchos, everybody working on the estancia. The day that the purchase closed and the the seller was there, I was there. And we said, everyone who wants to keep working here, we need you to keep working. And that was absolutely true. One thing, for a lot of reasons, we had to buy the estancia with all the livestock on it, which usually we weren't Put in that position, but for a lot of reasons, it was the only choice. So we bought in a, a estancia with twenty-five thousand sheep, for example, and it was lambing season. So in six weeks, we had fifty thousand sheep, <laughs> and the same thing with the cattle. We went from th- three thousand to forty-five hundred head of cattle. So we ran that we ran in parallel for five years the the creation of a parklands and and we ran livestock on it so Mm. we while we were taking down fences in some areas so the original species could get back down into bottomlands and so on we were running all of this livestock at the time we were concerned that if we just sold off fifty thousand head of sheep it would it would affect the market in chile it was a big estancia so 
we we did it over five years and um some of the gauchos had wanted to retire but the former owner didn't have means for a pension or anything but we we absolutely provided that so some retired some are still there uh so this was in 2004 so 18 years some are still there some of the geniuses of the place i mean this is this is the thing that people really need to understand that wherever you're working, it is the people from those territories, often super isolated, very tough circumstances living day to day. And those are the people who make any of this possible yeah. because they know the land better than anyone. I don't care how much time you spend can never know the land. And, you know, you talk about the dangers of economic globalism, and I think even though your your work is at such large scales, it seems that you have a, a particular focus on local economies and on sort of bioregional economies yeah. um, and allowing local people who have the knowledge to manage that land. Well, it, it, I want to be careful because right now people are talking about indigenous people managing conservation lands. That We've been doing this for almost 30 years. All, all of the parks that we've been involved in in either country, if they're in Argentina, they were created by Argentines and, and equally Chileans in Chile. Doug and I largely have been the only foreigners involved in these projects. So I always am very leery that it becomes the Doug and Chris show. Yeah. And, and really, it couldn't be farther from the truth. And this is, these are people who were our, our main tracker and uh, cougar expert in the Patagonia National Park, lived on the Estancia and worked for his father, who was a tracker of pumas and foxes to kill them. And our, our Celio grew up being bonus for every skin he could bring in. And he has for many years now been the head tracker and, and um, kind of manager for that species in this project because he's the genius. He knows how to find them. He knows how to... Uh, collar them he knows he's he's the guy you couldn't run projects like this you couldn't do what these teams do without local people who know what the hell's going on so it's a combination of skills always like anything yeah yeah you hear similar things from uh in africa with you know people who were previously poachers um, oh yeah, coming I mean, to work that's for the good an guys. Extraordinary example, isn't it? Yeah, mm. it's it's beautiful, and you know, it just goes to show what what uh, incentive can do, and you know, exactly. Yeah. Well, so one of the things I wanted to talk about with um, with Patagonia National Park in particular, mm -hmm. it looks like on the map that it spans the border of Chile and Argentina. It actually doesn't, because it, it does biologically but it doesn't politically. Oh, okay. Chile and Argentina don't have an accord that would allow for a binational park. 
they're working on it, but that's what strictly I was speaking, it's they are two different parks. Okay, yeah, that's what I was wondering because Argentina, mm-hmm. you know, you've got separate political systems, and I'm kind of going, okay, it's not like in the United States where Yellowstone or or whatever can span the border between states. Um, what's that like working with? You've worked now with probably a dozen different presidents. I have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what's that been like? Are they uh, pretty consistent? Well, or is just it all as over the I place? was saying about place and people, every president is a cakewalk of their own. Um, we've worked with super left-wing presidents all the way to super right-wing presidents and everybody in the middle. Um, you know, we always say neither left nor right, but out in front. So we don't we don't get involved in Chilean and Argentine politics. We will work with whoever the entity is who can create protection for these jewels of their countries. And we have never worked with a president and failed to create something with them. Wow. So I don't know. I just think they, I think we're well known for not, not wanting the, we, we don't care who we work with. I mean, we've never had to work with any bullies either, but I say this because nature can't wait until there's somebody in office that you happen to like or agree with. That's just the opposite. You have to go with whatever the circumstances are and go for it. And I think we, I think presidents have appreciated us in that sense. We go in with, with very specific things we hope to do for their country under their tutelage as the president of that country. And, and we give them the credit because it's one thing to want to donate something to a country, but it's another thing that they accept it. Mm. And that's, (laughs) so we have to work really well with governments and we've now worked with a few who have had second terms and we go back and do something else with them in their second term. So I think we have a good reputation um, of doing what we say we want to do and getting things done and put results in their column. And, and uh, we're very respectful of, of all presidential administrations, regardless of how the rest of their stuff is going. I've heard similar things from from other folks that I've spoken to. I remember Chris Wood, the CEO of Trout Unlimited, told me they're he said, we're equal opportunity conservationists. We can't afford to be political, you know, like we'll work with whoever will work with us. And yeah, uh, I think that, that you have to sense. put it's because you're putting nature first. If you are putting yourself first, then all of a sudden that becomes the thing that will determine your success or not. And you can't do that if you're working for the mother nature. You have to you have to put her first and that's gotta be what drives you. And then it doesn't matter who it is, you work with anybody. Now that you have been doing this for so long and so successfully, uh, has that skepticism from the communities kind of dissipated? Do you have the trust now, um, you know, because of your proof of concept? 
Yeah, I think so. Let's talk about this at a couple of levels. Yes, there's no question that in both countries, I think by and large, the Tompkins family and all the teams associated with us uh, are seen positively. That said, there are always people who wish that we wouldn't do these things or that uh, who call Patagonia National Park a puma factory, mm. a cougar factory, because we're not eliminating carnivores anymore. And, and people who are just downright don't like us for, for one reason or another, not, I'm not talking, speaking personally, but just um, because remember that here, everywhere in the world, ranching is dying. Yeah. So the last, and I come from a fourth generation ranching family, so I can say this as I've experienced this. And so it can be seen and is seen sometimes as yet another uh, nail in the coffin that somebody takes a big estancia and makes a national park out of it. I do want to say that in terms of employment, Patagonia National Park employs, I don't know if it's is six times the number of local people that the Estancia ever did. And kids aren't having to leave these small towns and go look for something else as they leave high school and so on, because there are opportunities that weren't there before. So, you know, these things are a process. I don't want to overstate it, but sure, people are going to be against us. I think no matter who you are, I think if you're a good neighbor, you are transparent, which I think is essential, and that you work hard to do what you said all along was your intention, then you eliminate a lot of that distrust, dislike, but you never get rid of it all together. You know, things of this scale and this ambition I think are always met with yeah it's a hard pill to swallow if your your livelihood or your traditions are being in you know you're perceived that your ranching tradition and your way of life is being threatened altogether but of course absolutely you know, I think that's that's a short-term perspective in some ways um I understand it definitely and in some places it is a huge issue but I think the work that you're doing is considering the long-term survival of these habitats. And I know that you are not trying to get rid of ranching altogether. I know that you're working in ecological agriculture. Since we've been down there, we've had eight cattle ranches ourselves, and, and poof, 25 farms trying to figure out, can you farm around Pumaline without cutting down your forests? Yeah. Can you ranch cattle up around Ibera National Park without denuding the grasslands? Um, we, we are completely participatory in all these difficult questions. Like we have to eat. So what are the methods or techniques you can use for cattle ranching or whatever it is to try to preserve 
restore ecological balance, but also have dignified human lives. Yeah. Yeah, I just spoke to a man in uh, central Idaho who is working in sheep and wolf coexistence. Pretty fascinating mm-hmm. stuff with large-scale sheep herds and Very interesting. wolves in the landscape and zero predation using non-lethal methods. Um, you know, and, and so I'm all about trying to find these these ways for of coexistence between working lands and wild lands, you know, the buffer between yeah. between the two. Um I want to go to toward well, I want to talk about rewilding, but really quickly, the marine conservation areas. Mm-hmm. I'm really fascinated in this. When did that all start and what's your approach to to those marine conservation projects? Well, to be really candid, the first ones, the big ones, which you mentioned at the top of the hour, it was not long after my husband died in a kayaking accident. And I just was really of the mind to do just go faster, larger, um, which we have done, but we had an opportunity in Argentina, or I saw it as an opportunity. Um, There weren't really any big marine protected areas in the Southern Atlantic. So at the, with the leadership of Sofia Henanen, who has been the leader in Argentina for years, uh, I'll just say that we, 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 we saw a moment we thought was a moment to, to really put forth two new giant marine um, conservation territories, a lot of which is no take, which means no activity inside them, which is hard to get. And with the, God, the talent of the team in Argentina, they, they, they came through. They, I know, the government of Argentina came through. Were these prime fishing areas or? Part of them, yes. Yeah. Of course, it's a lot easier to get marine protected areas and places where nobody wants to fish. But yeah. yes, there were, was a combination of heavily uh, medium and light fishing and probably some where there's almost no fishing. But when you look at our interest is where the Pacific and the Atlantic and the Antarctic waters come together around the toe of the Southern cone. So we were really happy with those and we continue chipping away at it. There's something, it's really hard for me to conceptualize marine conservation at that scale when it's landscapes and i can look at drone photography (laughs) i kind of get it but when you tell me 30 million acres of ocean i'm like okay what what is that (laughs) well you know it's i we have to be real realistic and honest about these things when it comes to marine protected areas and almost anywhere in the world the means to protect those protected areas has not kept up with now the 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 creation of them so if you just decided not to do anything in marine conservation until we know that it can really physically be protected you'd never start 
So at least from my mind, you have to work on creating and creating these formally designated marine areas, but, and then also figure out with governments and so on, how are they going to protect them? Because land is so much easier to protect. And so it's a huge conundrum for everybody. And of course, we're, we're neophytes when it comes to marine conservation. There's so many extraordinary marine conservationists out there whom you could talk to about this, but that's kind of how I see it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It seems like a whole nother, um, mm. just a very different type of, of work. So you mentioned Ibera National Park and yes. you mentioned that it was highly degraded and that many of the keystone species were missing. And yes. so you set about to rewild this, which is the second sort of core tenant of your work. Can you explain what your approach to rewilding is and what it was like in that national park? Well, I think probably most of um, you listeners out there realize that the besides the climate crisis, one of the gravest issues we face as humans is the extinction of species. And it's happening at a rate that everybody suspected that it was happening very quickly, but now we know absolutely it's happening in weeks and months and not decades and centuries. So in our small way, we just decided, I may have mentioned this earlier, that where we work anyway, we're going for fully functioning ecosystems and not just calling it a national park and so on. So that really took on huge work. And that is, for example, in Ibera, there are a lot of species missing, but the keystone species is the jaguar. It's, it's sort of the southernmost range of jaguars. And the jaguars haven't been there since the 1930s. So we thought if we, if we leave all this work that we've done here and that the province has done and the nation has done, it really cannot be finished unless jaguars roam free and several other species to really reset the clock on this 2 million acres. And so we, just, we, just, we committed ourselves to doing that, though we didn't have any idea at that moment, how, how do you do that? So we spent 10 years, it's a long story, that could be a whole nother show with, um, on creating the circumstances so that if you do bring them back, they don't just go extinct again, because don't bother to start unless you have mitigated what happened 30, 70 years ago, 100 years ago. So we started out with giant anteaters. Today, there are three fully functioning population of anteaters. They're back. Um, wow. Red-shouldered macaws, very difficult. That's another show just by itself. They've been gone for almost 150 years, and they are back breeding and flying in, in, in freedom again. All the way up various species, giant otters, um, but the jaguar has been 
not only at the top of the pyramid of species, it's also been the top in terms of, of complexity and difficulty in bringing them back. But the long and short of the story is we, we decided to develop the first jaguar breeding center anywhere. And we have six and soon to be seven jaguars roaming free, um, two mothers with two cubs each, and a male that's going to be reintroduced very soon now. So technically speaking, they're back. And, you know, we'll continue to augment that population, but you, you the genetics that are involved in all that stuff to make sure that whatever you do, you're leaving a genetically rich jaguar story there so that they can grow and prosper and disperse and really imagine them fully back. Yeah, this is my probably my favorite aspect of your work, watching these videos and the, the labor <laughs> of love that it was, you know, literally training these macaws to fly oh, again no, and training that, them what to be afraid of. I mean, teaching them to be puppets. wild. Yeah. And uh, no, that that all of the rewilding teams in Chile and Argentina, they're doing, they have, if anybody understood what it's taken to bring numbers back up that were fragile or bringing back such as Jags and, and the macaws, as you referred to, I mean, they are heroic stories. Someone who has to teach a big bird how to fly. They have no muscles. They have no idea. They don't know what to eat except peanuts. They don't, they don't understand threat even as a concept, much less specifically what are the threats that they'll face going because back out bred going in into the wild. And that's where they got into puppetry. And they would take one bird out of the holding group and it would false attack it and all the other macaws are up above watching and screaming and crying. And the oh. one who's, of course, the unlucky guy who's actually close to the puppet. But this is how they learned. What about um, Jeffrey's cats? All of these species that would love to have them for dinner. How do you get them to eat the fruit that they should be eating in these areas? No, it, it's on. And how do you get them to fly? How do you get them so they can fly through trees? That was a whole section just on they can fly A to B in a straight line, but how are they going to know that they can move their wings and their bodies and fly through the middle of trees? No, the whole thing, <laughs> it is, it's endless. And it's, it's extraordinary, yeah. I have to say. I'm I, so proud of all these guys. I, I, it brings tears to my eyes. Folks, uh, I'll try to post some links with the episode, but these videos are they're short and just really uh, fascinating videos of, of the people that are working on rewilding these species available online. Um, I, I heard you say, or maybe read somewhere, you were saying essentially preservation is not enough. We need to have an active hand in restoring and rewilding. That's right. And from from hearing about this work and seeing it it seems like it takes 
for all the lack of care and lack of attention that went into degrading and extirpating <laughs> these species, it takes about twice as much to restore them. Um, so I don't know. I'm really interested in this work, but it seems like it's probably one of the most expensive things that you all do compared to just acquiring land, you know, oh, yeah. efforts. I mean, land, because we're trying to buy as much as possible can be expensive, but, but, um, and building the infrastructure for national parks and so on. Yeah, that's expensive. I think it is expensive to rewild extirpated species. It can be, but it's also not. I mean, it, you know, they're trying to, in the UK, they're trying to uh, help red squirrels come back to their rightful place in nature. They've been hammered by the little gray squirrels that were reintroduced. And, and so they've had the bejesus kicked out of them. And so is that really expensive? I'm not sure. It really varies. It really varies. As I've said, I think throughout the last hour, everything is so variable. Uh, but then really with all this work, you think about what are the costs if you don't do it? I know that you're addressing the actual costs, but for us, I, I suppose um, as a family and, and I include friends in all of this, if, if, if we have the unbelievable opportunity to try to slow down this train of extinction, global climate crisis, what, a, what an exclamation point to, to lives. And it's, there's so many people working on all this stuff we've been talking about. And, and that's, a, that's something we're all so grateful for. Hmm. Grateful that, you know, I mean, most of the money came from Doug's estate or Doug's livelihood and so on, and some from mine, but God, what a way to, to, to use those funds towards something that you love, towards something that you know to be true. We're just so fortunate. I can't say that enough. <laughs> and well, I don't think of it as us. I think of it as in the big us. Yeah. Um, I'm lucky I met Yvonne when I was 15 years old. I'm lucky I, Doug and I re-met. I'm, I'm just a combination of luck and hard work, I guess. <laughs> probably any of us, if we can say that, we're probably, life's okay. Yeah. Well, well lastly, um, you know, I think the the creation of national parks and the rewilding efforts are tremendous, especially in these places that you've identified. Here in the U.S., with an established national park system, mm -hmm. um, not a whole lot of prospects for creating new ones. It seems to me that ecological agriculture, as you call it, or um, mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of names for this right Farming now. Farming with the wild. <laughs> Farming with the wild, holistic management, regenerative yeah. agriculture, many names yeah. for similar endeavors, to me is um, some of the most compelling and effective 
work that's happening across the U.S. right now and across the world because I think it really encourages people to have a cognitive shift more toward a deep ecology where they're they're giving the middle finger to that economic globalism that you talk about. And mm. they're saying, we care about our local uh, economy. Yeah. We care about our soil right here. Yeah. And, you know, and they're really act, acting um, locally, but thinking globally in mm. a way. Um, so can you tell me about some of the work that you all do um, in South America in, in ecological agriculture? Well, I want to be really clear that um, uh, most of our farms and rent cattle ranches have been sold okay. just because we're getting old. Doug is gone. I'm getting old. <laughs> um, but we, on, on the cattle side, grazing, new grazing standards, new grass management concepts and so on, our largest was in, in Argentina. It's 20,000 acre cattle ranch. We had about 6,500 head of uh, mother cows. And we worked really hard, not only in terms of grassland management, but also um, improving the lives and living conditions and so on of everybody working on these ranches. And then finally, uh, the genetics for really good um cattle for the area that we were working in, which was really more marginal grasslands than the really famous Buenos Aires grasslands. Um, we've worked all the way down. We had a 7,000 acre, really extraordinary uh, farm that I think was Doug's last masterpiece. And if your listeners are interested in seeing what is largely considered to be one of the most beautiful farms ever created. It's called Laguna Blanca in Argentina. Mm. And uh, there is a video on YouTube on this farm. So, and then especially in Chile, we had a lot of smaller farms with uh, trying to develop multi-use products that could allow small farmers to keep their forests intact largely of course you're going to use some of it um, and using skills for doing other kinds of production on small scale in a temperate rainforest which is not easy yeah. we we um, have did a lot of work with community efforts like the skill of of um, making wool that you can, uh, or processing wool by hand and all of that. We, we, we've just worked at organic garden everywhere we've been, we create organic gardens that are um, open schools for everybody in the region. We've had a lot of really beautiful, fruitful, um, organic gardens. So I come here because of COVID here to the family ranch. And I, my pride and joy is the organic garden here that I put <laughs> in the minute I got here. <laughs> it's funny that you've got, uh, you know, such a massive impact and, uh, and your pride and joy is a little family garden. 
Yeah, but <laughs> even with the national it's parks, it's kind out of there. river bottom land, so that yeah. it's pretty rocky. The soil's not that good. So, I've really loved um, digging out the rocks, and you know, all this. It's like a good Buddhist would say, "Chop wood and carry water." I'm a worker wherever I am. There's a wonderful book that partially inspired this podcast called um, Gardens, an Essay on the Human Condition, just about what you're describing. Absolutely. Yeah. I really believe that I don't care how big the garden is. It could be four feet by four feet. Something happens to you. Something emotionally and physically happens to you when you have to take care of something like a carrot or or kale or whatever it is, growing something and the process of seeing a tiny seed become something is just mind blowing. And it could be in a jar. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Everybody can grow a garden. Yeah, we're we're absolutely meant to uh to curate and cultivate our surroundings. I, I firmly believe that. Yeah. Um so we've covered most of covered uh, a lot of ground (laughs) i mean it's impossible to cover everything you've done over 30 years but um i think hopefully the listeners have an idea of of who you are and your incredible legacy you and your late husband um lastly i just want to ask you about this is maybe a tough one at least for me but um there's this figure going around that 100 companies are responsible for 71 percent of global greenhouse gas emissions no question in my mind and and I think that may be a slightly an oversimpli- oversimplified figure if you actually look at like where where all those emissions come from. But still, it's there's no question that that uh, you know corporations are extremely liable. Hmm. With your background, it's it's silly for me to sit back and critique companies um, who maybe are giving one percent of their proceeds. Well, that one percent might be millions of dollars, but you are uniquely qualified to criticize um corporations i think having come from that world what do you think is the way forward for us to curtail some of this uh unsustainable business practice well that's a that's a conversation all its own but i'll say since we're ending i will say this i was just on another panel this morning in the uk (laughs) on this very subject Mm. And I think we we have no right to have clean air and clean water. These are things we have, and I mean the big we, you, all of your listeners, me. You have to fight for these things. You 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 you. We do have a right to clean water, to clean air to feed ourselves and so on, but we don't have a right to strip a future for future generations, right? So corporations don't move unless they're forced to. So all of you, especially because you're young, I'm old, all of you have to join in movements through buying, buying your dinner is like voting. Everything you buy 
every film you go see, whatever we do, you're voting for someone else's future. And you're so young, you're voting for your own. Corporations are not going to change voluntarily unless they're forced to, but sovereign states are going to be the last entity to really force them to do anything. Mm. It is the people who buy what they make. It is Greta and all the people in the streets. It is shaming, uh, calling different leaders of corporations to task. It is demanding that local production of energy, local production of anything is preferable over a globalized economy. But you have to fight for these things. If you sit back waiting for them to change through some miracle, through the corporate echelons themselves, forget it. You are a master of your own fate. Change is driven by insistence. It is driven by desperation. It is driven by saying, no, I'm not going to be part of this. And, and you have to get comfortable that we swim, every one of us swim in a sea of contradiction. I'm looking at you right now. You have a lot of, you have microphone, you've got everything you need for the podcast. I'm looking at myself. I look at my desk. I look at the sunroom. I'm swimming in the same sea of contradiction. But where are you going as people in the end? What are the decisions that we make every day, usually on the hour? And it, People say, oh, you know, I'm tiny. I can't make a change. Well, in, in many cases, that's true. But shame on all of us who don't try and who put yourself out there in the middle of the fray and demand that your future, because you're so young, and certainly the future of everybody else younger than you are, where are you headed and that's a serious question that each one of you has to answer on your own. Are you going to fight for those things that you love? Are you going to fight for those things you know to be true? I think we all have to get up in the morning and look in the mirror and decide or remember that we are what we do no matter who we think we may be, it has to be attached to what we're actually doing. And I have to say that to myself all the time. And, and I don't leave myself out of this um, critique at all. In fact, I'm probably harder on myself than I am on anyone else. Because I do know, I do know what's at stake. I have seen it. And as I said this morning in, 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 in this talk I gave, how, how will our generation be remembered? Very, very severely and badly. 
I'm 71 years old. I, it, it really has gone amok since World War II, but boy, my generation hasn't been able to turn this super tanker around. And um, you guys, when I was your age, I didn't know all of this was taking place, but your problem is, you know. <laughs> so your, <laughs> yeah. your incentives and, and how you decide what to do with your lives matters at, at such a younger age than it did for us. We were out protesting the Vietnam War and civil rights and feminism and peace. Um, but you guys have the planet. Yeah, we're still busy talking about all those other things too, though. <laughs> well, yes, but you have yeah. just, you need a bigger basket than we were aware that yeah. we needed at the time. You know, I think, I think it's really good advice to focus on your consumption. I think production will always reflect consumption. Yes. And like you said, you know, using your, your buying power and, and yourself being a discerning consumer is one of the most, I say easy, it's not always easy, but one of the most important things you can do. It's something I'm still working on. Um, I'm pretty good about, you know, where I get my, my food and my meat and things like that, but yeah. I still drive a whole hell of a lot. I still, you know, buy plastics that I, that I kick myself for, you know, none of us are perfect, but I, I think that is a far from a, it. A very effective uh, means of enacting change. Well, Chris, this has been amazing. It's it's a real honor to speak to you. I appreciate your time. And, um, well, it I, is for me, too. Oh, thank you. I, I saw somewhere that you said um, you think of your work as paying rent for living on Earth. And uh, I just want to say I think you've been a, an exceptional tenant <laughs> in your time here. <laughs> well, that's not my – I think that's Doug or Yvonne. But, yes, I, I agree with it. If I can die having been a pretty good tenant, then then we'll call it we'll call it that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. I look forward to um, seeing your continued work and uh, hopefully at some point being able to visit some of these places that you've been able to preserve. I hope you do. I really do. Okay. All the best. Much love to everybody. Bye bye. Likewise. <laughs>